The Old Testament scripture reading for this morning, as well as the sermon text, a little bit different this morning, comes from Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now implore God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands he will accept you, says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offerings from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at, its contempt, at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, uh, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, shall I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable or an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And now this administration is for you, or monishment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the uh, offal from your festival sacrifices. And you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace. And I gave them to him, this called uh, for reverence. And he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. And from his mouth men should seek instruction because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. 
So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Thus ends the reading of our God's holy word. Let us go now together to our God in prayer once more. Our Lord, we know that you are faithful and true and that we can trust in the words that you have spoken for your people. We pray that you would help us to hear from your word and and understand and that it would penetrate our hearts. We indeed, we pray, Lord, that you would use this word and the speakings of this, this sinful man even now. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Well, this morning I find myself in a unique position. Uh, you know, true, truly, how often is it that a minister preaches his last sermon to a particular congregation? Uh, It usually only happens once. Uh, And because of that, it's a unique opportunity. In fact, I saw recently in a comic strip how one preacher took advantage of this particular situation. Uh, It shows the preacher standing in the pulpit with his suitcases stacked beside him, and he says, I've always wanted to preach this sermon. Uh, You know, the implication being the preacher was going to tell the congregation everything that they've been doing wrong or perhaps even sinful. Well, that's not this sermon. Nevertheless, as I said, it's a unique opportunity, and the question for me this past week and even a little bit longer has been, what do you say at the end of a pastoral tenure? Do you focus on the uh, good times we've had over the last few years? And truly, there have been wonderful times and wonderful years for my family and me, and hopefully they've been good for you as well. Do you focus on the things that have been accomplished Do you focus on the areas that we could have improved upon together as a congregation? Do you ignore the past altogether and just keep plugging away at the current study, pretending that nothing significant is about to change in the life of the congregation? None of these things seemed quite right. They didn't sit well with me. Because as your pastor, the real question, and it has always been this, has been, how can I help Christ sheep the most at this moment? Is there some way to continue guiding the sheep entrusted to my care even as our family departs? Is there some way to guide the sheep, especially as you look at what seems to be an uncertain future and unsure of what may come? And that is, in fact, what brings us to Malachi and Timothy this morning You see, as you will be looking for your next under-shepherd, your next pastor, it's appropriate to ask the question, what should you be looking for? Now, what should this man be like? Should he be married? Should he have 2.5 kids? Uh, Should he be a native of Pennsylvania? Or can he be a transplant from another part of the country or even the world? I mean, these are the kinds of questions that we ask about the man 
But what is God's priority concerning the matter? What is most important to him? And that question should be at the forefront of our minds both this morning and for you as you consider new candidates. Well, the good news is, people of God, that God has plenty. He has left plenty of instruction in his word about his ministers and what they are called to do and not called to do or be, which should help us as we consider what you will be looking for. And so with that, let us look to Malachi this morning, where the first thing that you see is ministers are to be godly. Ministers are to be godly. As we come to Malachi, and especially as we come here sort of dropping in out of the blue, it's important to understand a little bit of what's going on in order to understand our text. You know, what's the context here? And without going into too much detail here, Malachi is prophesying in a day when God's people have returned to the promised land from exile. Uh, For many years now, Israel has been conquered by the surrounding nations, by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, and most of God's people have been carried off into slavery and into exile, away from their homeland. But now, that time period has ended. And most of God's people have been released to go back to Israel and to make it prosper again. And so it seems like as you come into this book that it should be a great time of revival and revitalization for God's people, a time of rejoicing. But the problem is, it feels to the people of God anyway, like the glory of God is no more. Israel is no longer a large nation, but it has been reduced down to the size of a 20 by 30 uh, spot of land that's a very small uh, property. You can drive it fairly quickly. Uh, you know, Some of you have probably driven that from York today. And the truth for Israel at this time is that everything feels paltry compared to the glory days that have gone before. It feels paltry for those who have returned, who remember the good old days. Things aren't the way they were before. And it's simply not as glorious as it once was. And so maybe God's people at this time feel neglected. Uh, Maybe they're suffering a um, a little bit at this time. But the bottom line is that God's people just are not satisfied with the state of the church at this time as it currently stands. And so what begins to happen is that the worship of God's people, as they come to worship our God in the temple, God's people begin to bring uh, uh, worship that is a form of godliness, that has the appearance of godliness, but it's hollow. It's empty. To any who would look in and see how things are, they would see worshipers worshiping, but Malachi and God are saying their hearts are not in it. They're no longer worshiping from the inside out. And that is the main problem in the book of Malachi. The people of God have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. It has become an empty religion. It is nothing but formality going through the motions. And this does not please God one bit. Because God isn't fooled when we go through the motions. He sees right through to the heart. You know, like Superman with his x-ray vision, he knows and can cut to the heart of the matter. And that's just what he does. God, in this book, he will bring seven complaints against the people of God about their formal religion that has no heart in and through the prophet Malachi. And so then, as we come to Malachi, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 1, we come to what is the second complaint that God brings against his people 
And then more specifically against his priests or his ministers. God says in verse 6, you priests have despised my name. I have no honor among you. Not even the kind of honor that a father deserves from his son or a servant, his master. None of that do I receive. You despise me. And the priests throw out their hands and say, how have we despised you? And God says, you offer polluted sacrifices upon my altar. You offer blind and lame animals, even those that have been wounded and killed by wild animals. These half-mangled animals are your offerings, that you bring those before the Lord of glory as a sacrifice is despicable before me. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you, but you have to understand what God's people are really doing here. I want you to imagine, if you will, that some bigwig, either you know, the, the governor of Pennsylvania or senator or the president, calls you up and says, uh, I'd like to come over to your house for dinner. Now, regardless if you like the guy or not, or whether you voted for him or not, you know instinctively that it is time to pull out the fine china, because this doesn't happen every day, and it doesn't happen to every man. That for whatever reason that you are privileged to enter into this man's home, it's something, or to have this man enter into your home, it's something special and wonderful, and you're going to serve the finest food you have so that you can uh, try to impress him because he's an important guy. Now imagine this man enters into your home, and instead of doing that, when the governor comes over, you serve him uh, meat with some sort of greenish tint to it. When he asks, you know, what is this? You say something like, oh, it's a beef cut that was on uh, sale because it expired last week. Uh, or even something crazy like uh, the words of, you know, brother, where art thou? That, well, we slaughtered that horse last Tuesday and we're afraid it was starting to turn. You know, if you were to say something like that, if really you did that, what kind of response do you think that you would get? You wouldn't dare ever do something unusual or off-color to a man of even a small amount of, of importance relatively. And God says, so how dare you serve me with anything less than the best? Bottom line here is that God is getting the leftovers. More than that, God's not even getting second best. He's getting the bottom of the barrel and the offerings that are being brought to him. And God says, is this not evil? when you offer defiled and impure worship and sacrifice before me. And he's right. It is evil, plain and simple. God deserves our best, always. And yet, when you dig in here a little bit more, Malachi says the problem here starts with the priests themselves. Because they are the gatekeepers. They are the ones who are supposed to be concerned that the worship given in God's name is acceptable and pleasing. They're the ones who are supposed to inspect the sacrifices and make sure that they are without spot or blemish. And yet they bring these spotted and blemished sacrifices. They turn a blind eye and have no regard for godliness and worship because it benefits them to not see it, to not look upon it. They aren't blind to what's going on. Instead, they're getting some sort of cut in the profit on the side. It's like being paid to accept these crappy offerings. These ministers here are far from godly. They do not do what is right in God's eyes or seek to please him, but only themselves and what benefits them primarily. They're not fully devoted 
to God and his cause, but to their own benefit. And this is so important to God that he says, I wish one of you, just one of you speaking to the priests, would just have the integrity to see how utterly ungodly this is before me, that you are all being, and close the doors of the church so that you won't kindle fire on my altar in vain, offering this detestable worship. People of God, sometimes we serve God too cheaply, don't we? We serve him when it benefits us, but not if it gets hard. Not if things get difficult or if we have to suffer or sacrifice too much. We'll go through the motions, but is what we bring truly acceptable to him? Well, having a godly minister here helps prevent it. It's not foolproof, but it helps guard against us offering vain worship or when we step to the side, even accidentally. In fact, James Boyce once wrote, and again, this is not foolproof. He says, if God's ministers are godly, the people of God will tend, it's not guaranteed, but it, uh, to be godly also. And even the ungodly will have some cause for honoring the Lord's name. So we see a minister is to be godly, but also ministers are to faithfully teach God's people. Ministers are to faithfully teach God's people. Now that may seem like a no-brainer to some of us. And that, of course, God's people are to be godly. And of course, they are uh, ministers are to teach God's people. That's their main role, right? And yet, what is it that you see going on here in our text? Notice in verse 14, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices the Lord what is blemished. You see here, God's people are given a clear commandment of what they are to bring in their worship, to bring an undefiled male lamb, yet they bring defiled sacrifices because no one stops them. The priests do not defend the name of the Lord, and so the people of God are led in ignorance. They do not know Uh, uh, You know, it's kind of like in the book of Jonah. They don't know their right hand from their left hand. They're not able to discern all of which is harming the people of God in the long run because the standards of God's ministers are set so low. They are not seeking the best to offer to God. Therefore, the standards of God's people are low as well. And yet the whole world is supposed to look upon the church and to see and know who God is and to worship his name because of the people of God and the way the minister teaches the people of God. But the nations do not know him. They do not worship him because the ministers do not teach the people of God what God requires of them so that they might be a city on a hill or a light that is not hidden under a bushel. And God says in response to the lack of clear and holy teaching, this godly teaching, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and I will be feared among the nations. The implication is with or without you. Verse 11, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God says the priests, these ministers of God, must Teach the people, the whole counsel of God, it is their duty, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, ministers are stewards of the mysteries of God, and as stewards are to be faithful. 
That is their role, to teach, even when the people want to have their ears tickled because they are called to faithfully proclaim the whole counsel of God in season and out of season, when it's popular and when it's not. Chapter 2, verse 7 says, For the lips of the priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And if God's ministers will not do it, God will get his glory from the nation some other way, even if the very rocks of the ground must cry out against them. And so God's ministers are called to be godly. They're to faithfully teach God's people even uncomfortable truths. And finally, ministers are to see God's service as a joy and not a burden. To see God's service as a joy not a burden. You'll notice here in verses 11 through 13 how God's name ought to be honored in his own house and yet how the ministers of God serve him. For from the rising of the sun to his setting my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered in my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations but the Lord says the Lord of hosts But you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted. Its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. What's going on here? God tells us how his name is to be honored, how his name will be great among the nations. And yet, when the offerings are brought by the priests, the off, uh, priests look on the offerings and despise them. You see, when a worshiper would bring their offering, uh, a portion of that offering that was brought, whether it was fruit or grain or meat, it would be set apart the, for the priest so that he could live. This is his livelihood. He would be taken care of. His needs, his basic needs and sustenance would be met. He would get a part of the animal that was offered in sacrifice he would receive a portion of the offerings brought so that he might continue to have life and continue to serve the people of God. But these priests, they despised this. They saw the best things being offered to God, and they wanted it. No, they wanted better food. They felt that their services were worth more than the meal at the end of the day, and they began to grow covetousness of greater wealth than they needed to minister to God's people. Uh, It reminds you, and I don't want to point the finger too much away from our own hearts and our own uh, sinful desires, uh, because we all harbor within us a desire to to be seen as better than we are. But it reminds you perhaps of the preachers again uh, uh, asking the congregation to give more so that they can buy a private jet. Uh, You know, that that luxury has become a necessity to him in some way. And God says, that kind of thinking is shameful. You think you are underprivileged. You think that you're a big deal, and guess what? You're not. God's ministers begin to think more highly of themselves rather than humbly recognizing that they merely serve the great king. That they themselves are servants. They are nothing special. And yet they elevate themselves, therefore, begin to detest not only the things of God, but God himself. 
And God will lay a curse upon the minister's feet who do such as this in chapters 2, or in chapter 2, saying, you are worthless ministers who do this. Uh, it reminds me of Balaam and his donkey and how a professor in college told us very pointedly, especially the men who were going on to be pastors, if God can speak through the mouth of a donkey, then don't think you're so special when he uses you. And so from this passage, what we see is that the main calling of a minister, what God is most concerned about, is that he be faithful in teaching God's people, that he be godly and pious in his own life, and that that in turn would influence and affect the church, and then to serve God's people, not because it is a burden, but because it is his joy and pleasure to do so. Those are things that are very important to God. In fact, truth be told, this isn't just for God's ministers. We are all called to be godly, to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, to be faithful in the callings that have been set before us, and yet it is all heightened for the minister of the gospel. So as you look for your next pastor, next minister, what should you look for? Look for a man who is humble, who sees great value in the work and labor of his calling, who is joyful because of that labor, not seeing it primarily as a burden. Look for a man who will be faithful in season and out of season. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2 reminds of this, of this that those who are stewards of the mystery of God are to be found faithful. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul calls Timothy as he considers passing the baton on in the ministry to those who can be entrusted with it, uh, to entrust these things, namely the gospel that is preached and the teachings of the whole counsel of God, to entrust these things to faithful men who are able to teach others. And then he gives three examples, just like the farmer faithfully, steadily working away in the fields, in season and out of season, so too let this man be a faithful laborer of God's word. Just as an athlete trains in season and out of season in order to obtain the prize, so too let this man be a faithful laborer of God's word. Just as a faithful soldier drills in season and out of season, so too let this man be a faithful laborer of God's word. Look for a man who is godly who is an example to the flock, how he walks, how he prays, a man above reproach. All of these are of primary importance to God, and so they must be to us as well. Everything else that you might want is secondary. Everything else that you might like to have in a man is just a preference. If it is not oriented or does not come from God's word, which means he may not be good with administrative duties, he may not be the best preacher. He may not be vigorous or full of life. He may not have three children who love evangelism as much as you would like. But as he is striving after these things, being a faithful teacher, seeking godliness and to grow you in godliness and joyful in his labors and not weary from them, and this is a good minister who is approved by God. And that brings me to one final thought as we consider what God has to say on the matter of your next pastor. 
And that is to remember that no matter how well he might teach, no matter how faithful he might be, no matter how joyful he may labor for the people of God, that no matter how truly godly he may be, that he is a mere man. Which means that he too is a sinner, just like all of us. He will have his shortcomings. He will fail you at some point. He will disappoint you. I don't know when, I don't know how, but I know for a fact that these things will happen. I've been around churches long enough to know it will happen. Your pastor will sin, and he may sin against you. He most certainly will fail your expectations. I don't know if I can stress this enough. In fact, Paul, as he writes to Timothy, he reminds Timothy of this truth four times in a very short period of time as he is calling him to faithfulness, as he is calling him to godliness, as he is calling him to minister and look for those who are able to teach, who are worthy to teach. And rather than, uh, uh, you know, as he says all these things four times, he will tell Timothy, remember the gospel. Verse 1, remember the grace of Jesus Christ and be strengthened by it. Again, these are all commandments to the particular minister. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Verse 11, remember that if we have died with him, we will live with him. Verse 13, remember that despite our failures and our unfaithfulness, Christ will be faithfulness. And rather than keep a record of wrongdoing against him, rather than tally the score against him, People of God, remind him of the gospel and how it is true for him as well and how much he needs it as well. You see, at that point, people of God, you are called as the sheep to remember that your next pastor is merely an under-shepherd of the sheep. He is not the great shepherd. He only points the way to him, which means that Christ died for his sins too. By the very nature of being a sinner, your next pastor must and will fail at this high calling. Richard Baxter once wrote, The great and lamentable sin of ministers of the gospel is that they are not fully devoted to God. Who can that not be true? That is true for no man can be fully devoted to God save the God-man himself. Christ, the one who truly ministers to his people perfectly, acting as their great high priest, their pastor, suffering for their sins and drawing them into the presence of God rightly at all times and in all ways perfectly. He is the only one who is able to stand as a mediator between God and man, who stands in the house of God perfectly, ministering for God's peoples, meeting all of their needs. We can be thankful for that and we can rejoice that Christ Jesus is risen from the dead and intercedes for you, covering over your sins because he alone was fully devoted to God. So much so that not one jot or tittle of God's left or law was left undone. And so much so that he gave his life in order that you might live. Christ is your perfect pastor, people of God. And yet God's great wisdom he gives you under-shepherds to help you along the way. So as you look for your next pastor, pray for him. Pray that he would be godly. Pray that he pushes you to bring acceptable and pleasing worship to our God, who is greater than all of us in this world. And Pray that in his brokenness as a jar of clay, that he might joyfully 
and faithfully and repeatedly, whether in season or out of season, make the glory of the treasures of the gospel known to you. For Christ shed blood for our sins, and the righteousness of Christ are the greatest offering that we broken men can present to you. May God use it all to the glory of his name. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we come before you and we thank you for Jesus who is the head over his church that he faithfully and continuously intercedes on our behalf, that he is the great high priest whose uh, presence we need to enter into yours. We thank you for him, for the cross of Christ Jesus, for the suffering that he underwent so that we might be drawn into your presence. We thank you for him. And yet we thank you too for the gifts of ministers that you give to the church. We pray, Father, for your ministers We pray that you would continue to care for them, meet their needs in order that they may joyfully and without burden serve your people. We pray that that would be true for the next man that you would have here, that in your providence that you would indeed seek and bring to them a godly man, one who is faithful, one who is above reproach, one who is indeed joyful in all of his labors. And yet, Father, we pray that you would help the congregation, that in his failures, that they would look to him and not uh, dismiss his failures as much as recognize that he is a sinner like all of us in need of your great mercy and grace. Father, we pray that you would continue to guide your church, that you continue to hold your church in the palm of your hand as you have promised to do, that you would never leave your people nor forsake them, until the very end of the age. Even then, you will be with your people. Our Father, we thank you for these precious and good promises, and we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus.